Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, January 15th. In today's news, Elizabeth Warren refuses to shake Bernie Sanders' hand after their debate in Iowa. The Senate has the votes to pass an Iran war powers resolution. And more than 100 billion pain pills were shipped nationwide over nine years. But first, the big idea. New materials released last night by House Democrats appear to show Ukraine's top prosecutor offering one of Rudy Giuliani's associates damaging information related to Joe Biden if the Trump administration would recall the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. The text messages and documents provided to Congress by former Giuliani associate Lev Parnas also show that before that ambassador, Marie Ivanovich, was removed from her post, a Parnas associate now running for Congress in Connecticut sent menacing text messages suggesting that he had Yovanovitch under physical surveillance in Ukraine. A lawyer for Yovanovitch is calling for this episode to be investigated by the proper authorities. Among the other damaging revelations for Trump in the documents released last night are several messages that link the president himself more directly to this whole Ukraine plot. One message from Giuliani to Parnas said he had called someone he refers to as, quote, number one, ostensibly a reference to Trump himself, in an effort to lift a U.S. visa ban on a former Ukrainian prosecutor who wanted to come to the U.S. to make claims about Biden. The materials also include a letter that Giuliani wrote to Ukraine's then-president-elect, Volodymyr Zelensky, requesting a May 14th meeting with the new leader in Giuliani's, quote, capacity as the personal counsel to President Trump and with his knowledge and consent. Giuliani scrapped that planned trip because of negative publicity, and the meeting never took place. In another email, Trump lawyer Jay Succolo tells former Trump lawyer John Dowd that the president has personally given permission for Dowd to represent Parnas as a client. The email was sent just weeks before Parnas's arrest as he tried to leave the United States with a one-way ticket. Another document released by the House investigators appears to show Parnas directly involved with efforts to get Zelensky to announce investigations related to Biden, which Trump allegedly demanded in exchange for releasing military aid and agreeing to a meeting at the White House with Zelensky. In handwritten notes on a piece of stationery from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Vienna, Parnas wrote, literally, he wrote, quote, get Zelensky to announce that the Biden case will be investigated. End quote. The materials also show that Parnas, a Russian speaker who helped coordinate Giuliani's outreach to Ukrainian sources, was directly communicating with an array of top Ukrainian officials saying that he was representing the president. Among them was Yuri Litsenko, who at the time was Ukraine's top prosecutor and a close political ally of then-Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko, who was seeking re-election against Zelensky and would eventually lose. Litsenko wanted to get rid of Yovanovitch, the U.S. ambassador, in part because she had been critical of his office and supported a quasi-independent anti-corruption bureau that he despised. The messages, which were written in Russian and translated by our employees, show Lutsenko urging Parnas to force out Yovanovitch in exchange for cooperation regarding Biden. 
At one point, Litsenko suggests that he won't make any helpful public statements for Trump unless Madame, as he refers to the U.S. ambassador in Kiev, is removed. The new documents also introduce this new character into the drama and intrigue over the ambassador's ouster. This Republican congressional candidate who asserted to Parnasan messages that he had Yovanovitch under physical and electronic surveillance. Robert F. Hyde wrote in encrypted messages on WhatsApp that Parnas turned over to investigators, that he had a private security team located near the embassy in an operation to apparently monitor the U.S. ambassador's movements. In one text message, for example, he writes that Yovanovitch has just finished meeting with three different people. He added that her phone and computer had been turned off. Then he related to Parnas that his people would let him know when she was on the move again. Later, he alerted Parnas that he had been told Yovanovitch would not be moved into a special security unit. Then he wrote cryptically in another note, quote, They are willing to help if we slash you would like a price. Guess you can do anything in Ukraine with money. What I was told. Hyde did not explain how his team might help Parnas, who responded only with LOL. When the Post reached out for comment last night, Hyde replied in a text message, Sorry, I can't talk right now. Hyde is one of three Republicans running to unseat an incumbent Democrat in the 5th Congressional District in Connecticut. He frequently tweets about his support for President Trump, and he's posted numerous photos of himself with the president, including the two of them golfing together. Now, the House is expected to vote later today to transmit the two articles of impeachment over to the Senate. This will set the stage for the trial to begin in earnest next week, probably Tuesday, after a lot of procedural motions. All it would take for there to be witnesses, including Parnas or Giuliani, are four Senate Republicans to join the Democrats. The Parnas files that were released last night seem likely to intensify pressure to hear from some of these people. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, conflict between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren is a story that's been waiting to happen. Contradictory versions of what went down during a private dinner at Warren's condo in Chinatown here in D.C. more than a year ago as both were preparing to enter the race brought them to the brink of open conflict last night in Des Moines during a debate broadcast on CNN. Warren says Sanders told her a woman couldn't win the White House. Sanders was adamant that he said no such thing. The flashpoint underscored a broader reality, that success for one could mean the undoing of the other. When the two met on stage, neither appeared eager to air the details of what happened at their dinner. But even if the two appeared ready to declare some kind of truce on stage, there's little doubt that they remain on a collision course. After the debate wrapped up, Warren avoided shaking hands with Sanders when he extended his arm and the two appeared to then have a testy exchange with both walking away angry. Tom Steyer looked on awkwardly. For the past few months, Warren found herself focused on Pete Buttigieg as the more immediate threat in Iowa, but then he slipped in the polls and Sanders rose. Now Iowa has turned into a free-for-all with a three-way tie for first and Warren close behind in fourth. But it's actually New Hampshire that could be even more consequential, especially for Warren and Sanders, given political history. Both come from states that border New Hampshire, which historically has proven to be a significant advantage. That gives them an edge, but it also means that whoever finishes behind the other in the Granite State will suffer a catastrophic setback that will hobble them as Super Tuesday approaches. Coming on the heels of Trump's decision to kill Iranian General Qassem Soleimani, the debate last night opened with a relitigation of the war in Iraq and a renewed discussion over how and whether the candidates would commit troops to the Middle East. 
Warren committed to bringing all combat troops home from the Middle East, saying they're doing no good there. While Buttigieg pointed to his own experience in the military and said he would seek congressional approval for military action, but includes sunset clauses to limit it to a period of two or three years. Biden cast his experience as vice president as invaluable, while Sanders said Biden's vote in favor of the Iraq war was disqualifying. He said it shows that he may have experience, but he lacks judgment. Number two, the Senate is poised to pass a resolution limiting Trump's military authority on Iran, as four Republicans have now publicly committed to vote with Democrats to assert Congress's war powers under the Constitution. Susan Collins from Maine joins Todd Young from Indiana, Mike Lee from Utah, and Rand Paul from Kentucky, plus all 47 Democrats. A vote could come as soon as next week. The resolution is privileged, meaning Republicans opposed to the measure can't block it from coming up to a vote once it's ripe to use legislative parlance. It also means that supporters must secure only a simple majority for passage, 51 votes. But it is certain that Trump will veto this measure and Congress won't have the votes to override a veto. Still, it sends a significant message. And Trump's deputies and supporters say that message is bad, that it sends a negative message to the troops and projects support for the Iranian regime, despite its sponsorship of terrorist activities that have led to the deaths of U.S. servicemen. Supporters of the war powers measure, though, have taken pains to say they believe Soleimani was reprehensible, as they argue that that doesn't mean Trump can trample on Congress's right to declare war. Meanwhile, new video emerged yesterday showing that it was two Iranian missiles that hit that Ukrainian passenger plane last week. The missiles were launched from an Iranian missile battery around eight miles from the plane. The new video fills a gap about why the plane's transponder stopped working seconds before it was hit by the second missile. Neither strike downed the plane immediately. The new video, which was from a surveillance camera, shows the airliner on fire, circling back toward Tehran's airport. Minutes later, it exploded and then crashed down, narrowly missing a village that was full of thousands of people. Iranians, who are deeply disturbed by both the downing of this plane and the killing of Soleimani, are showing us that it's possible to be both angry at their own government and the United States at the same time. The efforts by senior Iranian leaders to calm the public stand in stark contrast to the defiant tones struck by Tehran amid the outpouring of grief earlier this month for Soleimani at his funeral procession. Iran is often presented as a monolith, a country where all of its citizens move as one. But that's really not true. Iranians are capable of condemning U.S. attacks against what they see as their sovereignty while protesting the gross negligence of their own authoritarian government. Number three. Newly disclosed federal drug data shows that more than 100 billion doses of oxycodone and hydrocodone were shipped nationwide from 2006 through 2014. 24 billion more doses of the highly addictive pain pills than previously known to the people, the American people. The data, which traces the path of every pain pill shipped in the U.S., shows the extent to which opioids flooded the country as deaths from the epidemic continued to climb over nine years. The Washington Post obtained this data, which was gathered by the Drug Enforcement Agency, after waging a multi-year legal fight, because we believe the people have a right to know. The volume of pills distributed skyrocketed as the epidemic claimed more and more lives. From 2006 through 2014, the period we have the data for now, more than 130,000 Americans died from prescription opioids. 
The number of pills shipped went from 8.4 billion in 2006 to 12.8 billion in 2011. Pill distribution started to decline slightly in 2012, and the additional data that we got yesterday shows that by 2014, the number of pills distributed was down to 11.8 billion. The decline coincides with a series of aggressive regulatory enforcement actions that the DEA took against some of the bigger names in the drug industry, including CVS, Walgreens, McKesson, and Cardinal. The new data confirms the states that were flooded with the most opioids per person. West Virginia, in this period, was receiving 67 pain pills per person per year. Kentucky was second with 64, South Carolina with 61, and Tennessee with 59. West Virginia also had the highest prescription opioid death rate during the nine-year period. It is a human tragedy. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, January 15th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's big idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. 